Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, and I say this a lot, but I've never been more sincere in what I'm about to say than I am right now, you are in for a treat. You are about to meet a truly remarkable, world-class human being and hero. Todd Nicely has a remarkable, a tragic, and an ultimately redemptive story of surviving the unsurvivable. You'll hear much more about his life story here shortly. You're going to hear about his desire to humbly serve from the front. You're going to hear about his two deployments overseas with the United States Marine Corps. You're going to hear about what happened to the then 26-year-old squad leader when he stepped onto an improvised explosive device, an IED, and what happened during that security routine patrol. You're going to hear about the resulting explosions and the loss of all four limbs and how he was able to survive. You're going to hear about what went through his mind when he was laying on the ground dying. You're going to be moved by it. You're going to hear about the stunning set of events that ultimately allowed him to survive the grueling recovery back. You're going to hear how Todd learned how to live again with no arms and with no legs and seemingly with no chance and yet you're, you're also going to hear how until the scars of his past were appropriately healed, how he could not fully begin to return to life. My friends, you're going to hear how people like Gary Sinise and my friends from Focus Brain showed up and served Todd well. And yet you're also going to hear a conversation that is undeniably painful. And yet a story that is radically redemptive. You're going to find a hero in this conversation. You're going to be renewed in purpose in your own life to move through the challenges that you face as you are introduced to an incredible human being with his resilient spirit, his infectious enthusiasm, his positive outlook, and his strength of mind and character that I believe is second to none. So my friends, without further ado, let me encourage you to Prepare yourself for a truly remarkable conversation with one of my friends, and now he is yours. His name is Todd Nicely. Corporal Todd Nicely, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. 
Hey, how are you doing this morning, John? It's an honor. As I told you before, we recorded, and I'll say it again now that everybody's tuning in, it is a huge honor to have you on our show. If I were to meet you randomly in a coffee shop like you and I did earlier this week, and I'm meeting you for the very first time, and I say, Todd, man, tell me about you. What do you do? How would you respond to that? Well, I'd just say, hey, my name's Todd Nicely, and I was a wounded veteran in Afghanistan. If you want to know more about me, ask questions, because it's hard to hard to go about my life. There's so much there. I mean, I could I could tell you ifs and ands and buts, but you know, a picture says a thousand words. And if you were to see me, you'd kind of get the idea of what has been happening in my life. Well, let me, let me paint the picture for you because sometimes it's easier to have someone else paint it for us rather than us to have to describe it ourselves. Todd and I met on Tuesday this past week at at, at a coffee shop and five different times while he and I were enjoying one another's company, people came up not to say, John O'Leary, we love you. We thank you for your work. We love your podcast. We tune in. They ignored me, which kind of bothered me deeply. And they looked at Todd and they just kept saying, man, we love you. We thank you. We appreciate you. We don't even know what you've been through, where you've been, but we celebrate your life. We celebrate your courage. We celebrate your resilience. And the reason why they said that to Todd is because this man who we have the honor of interviewing today is a veteran. He is a servant. He is an overcomer. He lost his arms and his legs in an explosion in Afghanistan. We're going to be talking about that today. But when they went over to him, they weren't walking over to Todd because they felt sorry for him. They were inspired by him. And as you listen to this conversation today, you're going to know why. So Todd, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit farther than our coffee meeting earlier this week. And we're going to go back to March 1st, 1984, man. Why is that date significant? Well, that was uh, the day that I came into this world. I was born to Richard and Julie nicely. And uh, I like to consider it a blessed life, even though I'm missing my arms and legs. I, I feel like growing up, it was, it was a little hard. Uh, my parents were divorced and when I was in the third grade, which I don't know how old that makes you, makes you around eight or something. But after that, I met my stepdad, who was really just a big, big part in my life. Before you met your stepdad, you were raised by your father. And you and I talked candidly about, about my dad first. My dad's a veteran, servant, great man, hero to me, and treated my mother and I and my five siblings with such respect, just in a, a prince of a human being my dad is. You had a different childhood than I did, Todd. Would you, you said, man, I've been blessed. Yeah, I, I'm missing my arms and my legs, but I've had a blessed upbringing and a blessed life. But it wasn't easy. W would you talk a little bit about, about the childhood even before third grade? Uh, yeah, um, growing up, my dad was a pretty big drinker. Between then, every now and then, he would, him and my mom, he was abusive physically, emotionally. It wasn't easy growing up in that environment, but you kind of learn to adapt to it. So I think some of the skills I have as an adult kind of grew from that because you had to feel out whether or not dad was angry or whether or not mom was on the fringe of, you know, anxiety because of what was going to happen. So you kind of grow up learning to navigate those types of things. And I think, you know, it kind of built into the skills of me being such a great Marine. So talk about that. If, if you have a father who's volatile, and a mother who's defensive and trying to do the best she can to navigate the situation, keep herself, keep her family safe. What were some of the skill sets, even as a little boy, that you were picking up on? Uh, just reading faces, you know, being able to tell when that was going to happen or, you know, 
being able to tell if dad was angry or if dad was happy or if mom was sad or, you know, you, you could just read the situations even at that young of an age. And it's something that I learned going through a program, which we'll probably talk about focus when you're growing up like that, 80% of what you learn is basically from the ages of zero to eight years old. Mm-hmm. So you, you learned who you wanted to be and also probably who you did not want to be by some of the examples you saw around you growing up. Oh, I, I believe that you're definitely a product of your environment, whether you choose to take what's going on around you and use it or use it the opposite way. Right. Well, you saw maybe um, one version of masculinity growing up, but you were about to be introduced to a different, far better version with your stepfather. Talk about him. He's a great man. He took on six kids that weren't his, um, never had one of his own, but he treated us like we were his. And, you know, we didn't have everything growing up. You know, we lived in a trailer, six of us crammed into a sardine can. He, he always tried to make sure that we had what we needed. And that was something that, in my eyes, took a lot of manliness to stand up and say, I'm going to take on this woman and her six kids when I don't have to, mm. you know. He always was there when you needed him, if you needed your brakes changed. He was always there if you needed him, you know, if you needed to borrow his car. He didn't, I've wrecked so many of his trucks. I don't know how he did half the time, but he was always there for us. And I, and I can't say enough about the man. What were you into back then? I, I know eventually what you, what you fall in love with, but, you know, as a, as a young man, you talked about third grade, fourth grade, middle school, into high school. What were you into? Football was my big thing. I, I was in love with football. I played football from seven to 18 years old till my senior year of high school. And, you know, it was a passion of mine. It, I was really good at it, I thought. And I was always a straight A student till I got to about middle school. Then you start falling in with the wrong group of kids and things like that. But, you know, I always made sure I was at practice and always made sure that I was there on time. You have these experiences growing up. You, in 2000, watched a movie that's going to begin to change the trajectory of your life. What was it about Saving Private Ryan that that moved you so much? Yeah, when I was about 16, that was about 99, 2000, you're right. And uh, I watched Saving Private Ryan, and I watched these men rush onto this beach with no fear, no, no worries about their own life, that they were just trying to protect others. And for me, it was I needed to return the favor to these men that tried to save our country that I got to live in that I believed I owed it as an honor and a duty to do the same for them and their grandchildren. So, you know, I, at that moment, I knew I wanted to go into the service. So it takes you a little while because you're too young. Then your mother won't sign on for you. You get employed, you start hanging sheetrock. And, and by the way, I, I, I'm amazed that you do this work because it's ultimately going to serve you far down the path of your life. But talk about hanging drywall. What did you learn hanging drywall? Oh, hanging drywall. I was doing that for about five years before I joined the military with my dad. I I did a lot of other construction as well, but hanging drywall was more of having the patience and being very precise on your measurements and just being precise. I mean, you you had to make sure that this stuff was put together real nice and neat and learning construction was great. It, it was fun because I got to step back and look at what I had done during the day, but it, it ultimately wasn't where I wanted to be. So at age 23, I think this is 2007, 
you pivot away from hanging drywall, working next to your father to, uh, to enlisting in the Marines. Why the Marines? If we jump back a little bit, I was going to join the Army before my mom wouldn't sign for me back in high school. Yeah. And then I ended up joining, I ended up hanging drywall, but then I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to see how far I could push myself. And everybody's always saying, oh, the Marines are the biggest and the baddest. And, you know, to me, it's, it was a challenge to myself. It was how far can I push myself before my limits break? Hmm. You're an old man, 23. Yeah you know, grandpa. So grandpa joins at age 23. You got these 18, 19, 20 year old kids probably trying to run circles around you. There's an emotional aspect uh, when you join that's very difficult, but there's a physical aspect that's also extraordinarily difficult for you. Which one was more difficult uh, uh, in the early days of becoming a Marine? The hardest part for me in the early days of becoming a Marine was the mental aspect. I mean, I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? (laughs) when you go through boot camp you're like what in the hell did I do after that I mean I was always a physical specimen because I played football and things like that I was just always very physical I was always the little guy but I could hang dry I was hanging drywall and so I had the strength and all that but it was it was the mental part of it like I said it's like what did I just sign up for There's a test that you take when you join the Marine Corps that allows you ultimately to place yourself on where you want to serve after and uh, you test out extraordinarily well on it. You, you could have gone anywhere. Why did yeah. you injury? I, I scored a 92 on it, and they tell me I could go wherever I want. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I told them straight up, no, infantry is where I want to go. You know, I felt that that was going to be my best option of being able to help protect men around me and be able to protect our country in the best way. So you choose the infantry for the folk because, you know, many of our listeners may not even exactly understand what that means. What, what does that mean to be, to join the infantry? The infantry means you're pretty much just a ground foot soldier. You're the one who's up front shooting guns and taking bullet fire. I mean, yeah, you're just on the front lines, making sure that your country is safe. You first go, you deploy to Iraq. Yeah. My first deployment was in Iraq in 2008. Talk about that. I came in at the end of Iraq, so we were there mainly for democracy balloting, making sure that Al-Qaeda stayed away from the voting process and things of that nature, but we did a lot of patrols there and stuff. Maybe a couple IEDs were found, but nothing too serious. I mean, we didn't see a lot of combat action or anything there while we were there. We were just, it was very quiet, quiet compared to Afghanistan. So you come home. And then turn around a few months later and head back out now, this time to Afghanistan. Talk about that experience. We come home and we ended up having to leave about, I would say, four or five months early because the unit in front of us became so combat ineffective. And when I say combat ineffective, that means that they had either wounded or lost so many men that they could no longer push on with their mission. So we had to come in and left seat, right seat them, which was replace them little earlier than we anticipated. So we left home earlier than we thought we were going to. But when we get there, I'm now a squad leader at this time, which is uh, the man in charge of three fire teams, which consists of four guys apiece. So that's 12 men. But now I'm in charge of these 12 men's lives. And it was really hard for me because, you know, I'd have to tell these guys 
hey, we're going out and we'd get shot at every day. And then we'd come home back to the base. And, you know, I had to turn around and tell them the next morning, hey, we're going right back where we came from. So to look at their eyes and have to tell them this every day was just defeating. So I would hold off every now and then and be like, you know what, just I'll, I'll figure out what's going on. Just go be happy that you're alive today. Mm. So I'd carry that with me. What's, what's that pressure like? I mean, I think right now, as folks are tuning into our podcast, everybody keeps bringing up how, how much stress they have in their lives and, and the pace that they're running and the challenges that they're facing. You are facing the same kind of stress at a far maximum amount of uh, struggle out there, coming back with all the stress in your life each and every single day. What do you do with that, Todd? That's the hard part is you just swallow it or you exercise. Like that's what I did over there was a lot was I, I would exercise to just try to keep my mind healthy. Cause I mean, if I make one wrong decision out there, I could be ruining a family or ruining a life. And that, that is hard to hold on to at 26 years old. I'm, they're all 18. So I'm, I'm eight years older than they are, you know? So I kind of felt like their father figure and that I had to do, I did what I wouldn't ask anybody else to do. I always went first. I always led from the front because these guys, to me at that time, I was only 26, but I was like, I had lived a longer life. And that's scary to think about when you're 26 and they're 18, you're still kids. Yeah. You bring that up a lot. While we're having coffee, you and I have met several times before earlier this week. And in almost every interaction, you talk about this idea of leading from front. And if someone's going to get hurt, it's going to be me. And if someone's going to take the risk, it's going to be me. Where did that come from in your life? This idea of, of serving others before yourself? I think I've always kind of been like that. And I think it will go back to being the middle child. When you're the middle child, you have to kind of play the peacemaker between the older and the younger. And you have to learn how to navigate through people in order to kind of make sure that there's a harmonious upbringing between the children. So, you know, I was always kind of in charge at the younger age when the two older siblings were at work. I was now looking after my three younger siblings. So, you know, it, it, it's always kind of been in my DNA to kind of help people. One of the people who you helped, one of the people who also helped you and inspired you through his lion's heart was a fellow named Nicholas Hand. Nicholas was one of my good friends. He was with me in Iraq and with me in Afghanistan. There was a group of us called the core four. We like to call ourselves. One of them was in my squad. One of them was in another. And then the other two were in different squads. And he was, he was killed seven days in. Let's just get that out there. Um, but having to carry him on the helicopter and everything, he really inspired me to live a great life for myself after everything that I've been through down the road. It took me a while to realize it, but I ended up having to start living for myself and him because he didn't get to come home. But this kid had the heart of a lion. He was the smallest guy in the squad. We used to put him in dog cages and roll him down hills and stuff. And he would just get up and come right back at us. And he always had something to say. And he just wouldn't let anybody put him down. And I was moved by that. I was like, you know what? You might be the littlest guy, but you ain't taking no crap from anybody. That's for sure. For you, your nightmare, the thing that kept you leading from front and trying to do your best to keep your guys safe was the concern of losing one of the guys. 
And I know he wasn't in your squad, but he is absolutely one of the core four. He's one of your brothers. On November 22nd, when you found out that you, you'd lost this brother, what do you think? It was a very sad day. Um, you hear it come over the radio, hey, we have a fallen angel, NH, and that was his initials. And at that moment, I was like, no, no way. There's, there's no way. I was just, we were just building a bathroom together, not even five minutes before he got called out for QRF. And which is quick reaction for us to help another squad. And at that moment, you kind of, you don't get to grieve it. You have to push it down because when they bring him back, all the younger guys are looking at you now because they knew how good of a friend he was to you. So now I'm pushing that down. Mm. I'm not getting to handle it and grieve it. I have to just keep pushing on like it never happened. And that was a hard one for me to come to terms with as we get further down my story that led to a lot of my issues and my problems. And because like I said, that's things you just keep pushing down to keep the mission going. So that way these guys don't look back and wonder, well, well if he's going crazy, then why can't I, you got to keep everything in line and in check. You keep it pushed down. You keep it in line. You keep leading from front. You've shared with me in the past one-to-one story after story of taking not unnecessary risk, but risk you could have assigned to somebody else, but you recognize in doing so it would put them at risk and you'd rather take that yourself. You led from the front all the way up until March 26, 2010. Take me into that morning. So March 26, 2010, we're about a month out from going home and we get a call over the radio that says, Hey, we need you to come out and you know, find something for us because the other squad was in a in a hide position, which is a hide position is basically they're they're up and they're hidden away from the enemy. They moved out at night and no one knows they're in this house. So they didn't want to be seen in the house because they're waiting for the Taliban to come pick up this package. So I go out and I find it and I mark it for them. And I'm not even supposed to be out that day. That was my day off where my squad didn't have to do anything. And on our way back, we stopped to go cross the bridge. Well, I stopped my guys back about a hundred meters because we're getting ready to cross the danger zone. And I go to cross the bridge. And as I'm going to cross the bridge, I step on it with my left foot. And I remember flying through the air thinking, Oh crap, they finally got me, you know, after hundreds of firefights and multiple bombs that I've found, this is the one that gets me on a day. I'm not even supposed to be out. So I ground next to the canal and, water splashes up my guys get to me I mean I'll spare you the gory details but it was uh, I was awake most of it I remember my corpsman smacking me a couple times did I remember screaming at him you smack me again and I'm gonna reach up and punch you in the mouth <laughs> and then uh, I just remember trying to breathe because if I remember if I kept breathing I'd stay alive and try not to scream so much so that way my guys you know they wouldn't they wouldn't remember me as this screaming corpse that they were trying to help that, you know, if I did die, they would remember me being okay. You, you're, you share all your stories um, so matter-of-factly that it, it just, um, it makes me even more emotional in hearing it actually, just how direct you are. So th th these men that you are leading are 100 meters behind you. You're the first one across. This is the danger zone. This is the potential kill zone. And you say you step on it. You step on an IED. This thing blows you up and it spews you, what, 100 feet? At least. What was the actual damage? What, what happened to you? 
I lost my right arm at the elbow, uh, my left arm right above the wrist, my right leg right above the knee, and my left leg was mangled so badly that by the time they got me to downrange, they had to amputate it as well. So I ended up losing my left leg above the knee as well. And, and just to paint the picture again, what you heard Todd mention, but you may have missed it. He's screaming because that's what you do when a bomb blows you up and causes you to lose all four limbs. And then he says, but then I realized uh, I didn't want to scare my guys. I didn't want to be remembered like this. I got a, a man screaming in pain, a, a screaming corpse that they're trying to save. These guys are trying their best to save you. You're their leader. You're their friend. You're their brother. What do you remember as you're laying on your back and looking up at them and they're looking down at you? What did you see on their faces? I just kind of seen hecticness. Like, what? how are we going to save him? Because at that moment, you got to realize that by that, there's nothing that they probably thought they could do. They're just trying to do what they know. And everybody goes into, you know, instinct mode where they have to help. And, you know, they're just hoping and praying that I come out of this alive. Do you see it like miraculous that they were able to remove you from forward action and, and even give you an opportunity of, of receiving care? Like I, I've never met with another servant, another veteran who has experienced anything like this. I got pretty lucky. There was a British helicopter coming up from the South that was able to grab me within the golden hour that they call it. I think I was on the bird within eight or nine minutes of actually being hit. The fact that that helicopter was where it was at by the time it got there, I believe that, uh, you know, I was pretty lucky that they were where they were and that I didn't fall into the canal because if I would have fell into the canal, I would have been rushed down river and they would have never got me. What do you remember from when the, when the bird, as you describe it, lands and you begin the long medical recovery back home? What, what do you remember from those early moments? Once they got me on the helicopter, I remember going, you might make this, you might, you might be able to, uh, making this out of this alive and I kind of passed out from what I thought but the nurses were saying that I was alive while they were trying to operate on me and I was awake and blinking and answering their questions but I think I was in shock by then I remember waking up in the hospital looking at my wife and asking to use her computer and she was like honey you know what happened to you right and I was like yeah I probably lost my legs and she goes you know you lost your arms too and I was like no, I didn't. But did anyone else get hurt? And she said, after that, I kind of laid back down after saying, good, I'm glad no one else got hurt and went back to sleep. So I'm just happy that it was me and not any one of my men. I don't know where I'd be today if it was. When I woke up one time from a surgery and realized that I was missing my fingers uh, due to amputation, the response that I had is, how could you let them do that to me? And if you go deeper and deeper and deeper through the conversation, ultimately I recognize why am I even alive? If I can't hold something with my hands, my life has already been cut short. What's the point of any of this? I'd always thought that's like a significant moment in my life. And then I meet you brother, who not only lost your fingers or your hands, but your arms and not only your arms, but your legs. As you are waking up in and out of consciousness, what, what thoughts did you have about your prospective future? At first it was, you know, how am I going to take care of my family? But then the second thought was, am I going to lay here and be sorry for myself? Or am I going to get up and do something about it? <laughs> you're, you're telling me that you never thought like, I hope they forget to feed me for the next few weeks. And I just, I, I just get to slowly fade. 
are you saying the whole time, man, I was just like, I need to get up, get moving and take care of my family again. Well, yeah. Cause the, the way my family all looked at me when this happened was like, yeah, he's alive. He's alive. And I thought, you know, at first it was miserable. It was, it, there was a lot of thoughts of, you know, how am I going to do this? How am I going to navigate this? But ultimately I looked at it as another challenge in my life and I was willing to take it full on head course. You, you shared with me in the past, this, the, the first time you woke up, opened up your eyes and saw your family. And for those of us who have been in a near-death experience and the first time we see our family and the way they look at us and we back at them, it's something you, you just don't forget. Talk about the first time you saw your family looking down at you. Oh, it was amazing. You know, they all wanted hugs and stuff, but it was hard to sit up. But the joy on everyone's face that I was alive and coming to and that I was going to be okay was, it took a profound effect on me because it made me think, okay, well, if they're happy I'm alive, then, you know, I'm going to be happy I'm alive because they're going right. to be on this long journey. It is a long journey, a journey that continues, you know, a decade plus after the explosion, it does indeed continue. You spend 16, 17 months in hospital, going through surgeries, going through care, therapy, learning how to ultimately navigate life again. One of the physicians early in your care said, it's probably gonna be four years. You, you got out in about a year and a half. When you are released from Walter Reed, what are you able to do back then physically? When I was released, I was able to run. I ran a uh, 5K hopes and possibility run out in New York. But then I also did the 5K Tunnel to Towers run. I was one of the only quadruple amputees to ever finish the uh, hopes and possibility run. One, because I was the only one. So I kind of have like this first place record of my own right now. <laughs> right. I don't see any challengers on the horizon coming for you. So I, I think you're safe I, at the top of that summit. I don't either. But um, also, you know, I was able to just walk again and do other things in life. I still every day try to do something different or more with my life than just sit around and be served. Like I'm still learning how to change parts on my side by side. I mean, yeah, I have my down days where I don't want to do anything, but I always at least try something before I say it. I've always found with folks who've been something traumatic physically that in the end, that's actually the easier thing to get through, whether you're climbing a mountain or you're recovering from whatever the thing is, the physical piece once you get your mind around it, that's the easier piece, the emotional, the mental, the scars on the inside of your heart. That, that's the part that is so painful, so difficult, so lifelong to return from. You come home from Walter Reed, you're running your races, you're finishing first, all that kind of stuff. But dude, the loss of your brother Nicholas Hand, the, the, the loss of your legs and arms, the loss of what you've been through, the PTSD that you are in the middle of, that comes back with you. That goes back into your marriage with you. What do you do with that? Man, John, you're good at segues. I knew where this one was going. We get back from Walter Reed and I get this house built for me. It's great. Me and my wife are living together and, you know, I'm, I'm not dealing with my issues at hand. I was happy to be alive at first, but I'm not, I'm not dealing with the underlying issues of what battle has done to me. What all these, I didn't have time to grieve for my loss of my limbs because I was trying to make everybody else around me feel comfortable and I was happy and I, you know, I was trying to make everybody else let let them know it was going to be okay but I wasn't letting myself know it was going to be okay mm. 
we move further down the road. My wife ends up leaving me because I'm drinking too much. I'm, I'm not dealing with the issues at hand, you know, just not the person that she fell in love with anymore. And, you know, it's hard to deal with that, but you know, she left amicably and we separated, but then now I find myself in this house alone and I'm all by myself and I'm drinking heavily and still not dealing with the issues at hand. I think I'm okay. And I'm not asking for help. And on June 2nd, June 3rd, 2016, I ended up shooting myself in the chest because the VA hung up on me on a hotline suicide call. And so here I am a couple years later, happy as can be. And then the next couple I'm not, I'm end up shooting myself in the chest. I'm just going to have you a pause on that just for a moment. Your wife walks out on you after this life that has been kind of taken away from you. We can own our part of it, but the reality is you didn't sign up for this. And now you're a quadruple amputee in a house. Thank you, Gary Sinise and others who helped to make this happen. But the life is still extraordinarily difficult. You don't know how to cope, right? So you do what I think many of us might have done, which is I'll just self-medicate. and I won't deal with it. I'll just drink it away, which doesn't ever work. And, and there's anger and there's all these other things that you're dealing with. She walks out, you hit rock bottom. And you make a phone call. For me, when I know your story, this is like the most painful. Talk about the moment where you pick up the phone and you realize, man, I can't do this anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out for help finally. I, I had had enough. I thought that I was going to take on this challenge and live it on and that, you know, I was going to be the best there ever was. But it gets lonely. You know, you start to feel like you're a burden on people and you start to feel like no one wants to help and asking for help is hard because you've got this marine pride so it becomes almost overbearing mentally so i was i was just done i had had enough i i wanted it just to stop i picked up the phone and called them and they told me i was too angry and irate that i needed to call back in 30 minutes so so you reach out for help and they say man when you settle down we'll we'll, we'll help you then yeah and at that point i said well, if they can't help me, who the hell is going to help me? You picked up a gun, Marine. You knew what to do with it. You knew where to aim it. And you chose, uh, and I'm sorry to be so graphic here, but I think even the reason why you did this informs the character of the Marine seated in front of me right now. You chose to aim that gun right at your heart. Why did you do that? Well, like I told you, um, even my therapist pointed it out to me that when I chose my heart, I was, I did that so that way my family could have an open casket so they could see me again. So in that darkest hour, here I am still thinking about myself and not even realizing it. I'm thinking about others instead of myself. <laughs> you know, I'm emotional hearing this, man. So if you're trying to stir uh, tears from O'Leary early this morning, it's working, Todd. Way to go, dude. So um, you're thinking about them at your darkest hour but them's not enough and you just, you can't deal with life anymore. So you pull the trigger and that's that. And then two days later, and I know you, you and I, uh, you know, try to figure out how to see life together through a spiritual bend. I think Todd, through God's grace, you think through pure chance, but I, I think we're both saying that, gosh, there's something going on here, man. Two days later, after you take aim and you pull the trigger and you try to end your life, you slowly open up your eyes and you see the same family who was around you six years earlier, they're around you again, but this time they're looking at you very differently. 
Talk about what you see when you open up your eyes on June 5th. After waking up in the hospital bed this time, I'm staring at a family that's really disappointed. Mm. And to me, that really hit home because I could have ruined their lives. So like when I said selfishly, I wasn't thinking about myself when I shot myself, but I was also thinking about them. I kind of wasn't because I didn't, I didn't put into effect what kind of mental effect that would have put on their lives because they might have been always thinking, well, what could I have done better? Why wouldn't I there? What, you know? So when you, when you do something like that, and this is for people who are listening and might be thinking about that, you're, you're depriving one person, one person in the world of the help or advice that you might be able to give. And if you do that, you never know where they're going to end up. And so I took that to heart and I really wanted to move forward on my best foot after that because I really could have, you know, changed a bunch of different lives. I even have it tattooed on my back. Your choices change lives. It doesn't matter what choice you make. You're going to be affecting someone's life by ultimately trying to end your life. And they weren't happy. I mean, it was a hard road, a tough pill to swallow. That tattoo you mentioned, I haven't heard that before. What's the tattoo of and why'd you put it on your back? Your choices change lives. I got that tattooed on my back before I left for Afghanistan because I knew what was what was ultimately going to come. And I wanted it to be a reminder to myself that whatever choice you make is going to change a life, whether it be yours or someone else's. For um, the baseball friends in the room and for the Cardinal fans in the room, you're going to recognize the next name because he held the bat barehanded. His name was John Mabry, a great player for the Cardinals and as wonderful as he was professionally he's a far better more decent human being great character guy march 1st 2019 mabry encouraged you to check out this organization called focus talk about first of all how'd you meet john mabry and and how did he encourage you to join focus um i had met john through an organization called joshua chamberlain society and they're a they're an organization in St. Louis that takes care of severely wounded veterans, all different types of ways, but they're, they're like a family to me, but he's part of it. We were out for my birthday. Like I said, they're like a family. They like to make sure they're part of everyone's everyday life. Yeah. We're out for my birthday, which is March 1st. And he tells me you should go to focus tomorrow. And I was like, no, I'm going to be hung over. I'm not going well, you need to go. And keep in mind, this focus program's been trying to get me to go for eight years. And I'm this big, bad Marine, and I don't need help. And little, I didn't see it, but everyone else did. And I needed help. And so he, he tells me I'm going to get to drink beer and blow stuff up. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, little did I know there was no drinking beer and blowing stuff up. But, you know, if it wasn't for him and some of the Joshua Chamberlain Society guys and a few guys from Focus, I probably wouldn't be where I'm at today without that program. So talk about that, man. March 1st, you're, you're, uh, you're out partying, you're celebrating your birthday, your life, you're partying with your brothers and family, and uh, Mabry has convinced you, hey, if you really want to party, go to Focus tomorrow. You'll drink a lot of beer, you'll blow stuff up, it's going to be fun. What did you actually find, though, when you went out to Focus? I found there was no drinking and no blowing stuff up, John. <laughs> I found that it would help me with my issues and struggles that I hadn't been dealing with. And it's a program that I can't really talk much about because, you know, you have to live it and learn it and understand it by yourself in order to get it. If that makes any sense to everyone listening. 
you know, I could tell you all day the information they're giving, but you're the one who has to, to understand it and make it click in the right type of places. So I was in that right state of mind where I was like, you know, nothing's working. Nothing's, nothing's working for me. I've been to all these other different types of PTSD programs and here I am still pushing everybody away in my life. And I, it really resonated with me to the point now where I'm a mentor out there and I, I help other veterans with their PTSD and I speak and I talk and um, it's just a great thing for me to be doing right now in my life because, you know, it gives me my purpose. And that was something I didn't have before was purpose. Mm. July 4th is a date that we, uh, we celebrate here in this country. You celebrated not only as a, as a citizen of the U.S. and a warrior within the United States, but also as a man who has now remarried. Talk about some lady named Michelle. Oh, my wonderful wife, Michelle. Yes, everyone, I'm remarried again. So if you get divorced once, don't act like it's the end of the world because there's someone out there for you. She is my rock. She's everything. She keeps me in line. She tries to at least. Uh, <laughs> she's my grounding point. She, I, We got married on the 4th of July because that was the day I proposed to her. And so two years later, we got married on that day. And we now have a young baby boy named Elijah, and I also have two children, well, stealth children, but they're my children. What do you love about Michelle? What do I love about Michelle? Everything. I mean, I don't think there's one little thing about her that I don't actually love every day. She always tells me that, you know, love is, she doesn't say love is not a feeling, but she always says, I choose to love you. I choose to love you. And that always sticks with me because in our relationships, sometimes it's give and take. And if you don't choose to love someone, they might just make you angry and you can choose to fall out of love with them. So you love everything about her. I'm going to tell, ask you then in a different way, what does Michelle love about you? Uh, John, we talked, talked about this and I still don't know yet. I don't know why she loves me, but all I know is that she does is by the things she does for me on a daily basis. Someone who didn't love me wouldn't do the things she does for me. And I can guarantee you that. When I was a, a little guy, I knew one day I'd become a father, but I, I was always worried about how my kids might feel about me being different than every other dad out there physically. When you hold your little Elijah Nicholas, and when you see him slowly go from being a little baby to a little toddler, eventually into a young man, what's your dream for him? What, what do you hope for in his life? To be a good person. I don't get to do the other things that dads get to do, like throw a football. And, but I, I can make sure that I'm there for him when he needs me for advice or, you know, make sure that I'm there to love him every day. And the only way I can do that is by being a good person myself and continuing to show role modelish behavior for him. So that way, growing up, he understands that even though I am the way I am, I love them to death and that's all there, that's all there is. So I, I got to see you earlier this week, not twice one week. People are going to start asking, like, what's up with Todd and O'Leary partying so much together, you know? But about a month ago, you and I saw each other live also. We saw each other out at Focus. You received out there something called a black shirt. What, what is the black shirt and why does that matter? The black shirt kind of makes you a mentor now. Now I get to, I've been through it so many times that I'm living what they, what they preach and I'm practicing what they preach. And I get to help other veterans every day, which gives me a purpose in my life. And for me, getting that just showed that I'm moving along in life on a better trajectory than I was 
when I kept hitting the ground and coming back up. Right. I believe that every time we hit rock bottom, if we come back out a better person, like a Phoenix rising from the ashes that, you know, we need to learn something from our mistakes or otherwise we're just going to keep hitting rock bottom. And now I'm on a trajectory force to where, you know, I'll dip a little bit every now and then, but I never make it to rock bottom anymore. And that's, that's a good place to be, man. That's a strong foundation from which you can leap. My friend, we, we partner our organization with, with organizations around the world, coaching up their people. And a lot of their people are calling into our coaches, talking about the challenges they face personally, relationally, professionally, with addictions, mental health. What's the encouragement you might give these individuals struggling on how to reframe that struggle that they face today to recognize the possibility that remains for them tomorrow? Geez, John, all those uh, struggles you just said, I think I've, I've gone through one time or another, <laughs> but maybe all at one time especially after being blown up in my career and stuff, my encouragement is just don't give up. You give up and then that's when things start to fall apart. Stay positive because good things happen to positive people. You might not think so because I thought that one time too, but I was asked one time, what are you going to do with the gift of your tragedy? Mm. And I learned that at focus. And at first I wanted to wring the guy's neck. I was like, what are you talking about? What, what kind of gift can I give with this tragedy? But, I've realized that with my tragedy, I'm able to help other people and veterans. And that's where my purpose comes from now. So if you're struggling out there, just remember there's always something good around the next corner. Every year on November 22nd, I get to celebrate the words I do. Words I spoke on an altar back in 2003 to my wife. Uh, she spoke them back to me. I'm lucky I got to hear those. On November 22nd, though, you don't celebrate that. You celebrate life, and you do so by hopping in your truck and driving out to Kansas City. Why do you do that? Um, well, first off, I didn't know that this was the day you got married. You didn't tell me that. But, um, yeah, uh, every November 22nd, a bunch of me and my guys, we go out, and I drive to Kansas City to visit Nicholas Hand's parents because that was the day he was killed. So we, as a platoon, try to make it out there so she gets to – remember her son with her Marine sons. As a brotherhood, that's what we do. And we always stick together. And so we go out and celebrate his life. I'm not gonna say mourn it, but we celebrate the life that he had and everything that he's taught us. And for me, I get to live for him now. So I have to make sure that I'm doing the right things in life to make him proud also on top of making sure that his legacy gets to live on mm. him. My son has his name, his middle name is Nicholas. So this will be my final question before we shift gears into the live inspired seven. They are seven questions that tether all of our guests together. But the, the final question for you is when you pop out of that pickup truck in the morning and you walk into a coffee shop, like the one you and I met in earlier this week, and you come in there missing your arms and your legs, but you have that goofy grin on your face. What do you hope that barista or the guy in line in front of you or the lady behind you sees when they see you? Hopefully nothing. Cause I don't like being compared, compared with apples and oranges, you know, and my struggles are different every day than everybody else's, you know, you never know what anybody's going to be living through and my hand, was dealt differently you know I don't want to be treated differently but what I hope they do see is a man that hasn't given up mm -hmm. 
someone that that you know even though life could have I could have easily sat back and just cried about it and been served my whole life and in a power chair if I wanted to I'm actually out there trying to live the best life that I can and trying to inspire others to get in line behind them and follow suit it's, it's an example you've been giving your entire life man and I am in line behind you and I'm in awe of the guy walking, literally walking. I hope people hear that walking in front of me. So uh, Todd, nicely, we're going to wrap up with seven questions. The first question is get ready for it. You can do this. Todd, nicely, what's been the most inspirational or the most encouraging book you've ever read? I would have to say on fire. What, what was it about on fire that you, uh, you enjoyed? Well, it was just the story of John O'Leary. He uh, <laughs> actually, you know, it, he's, you've been through just as many triumphs and trials as I have. So, you know, just, I remember at Focus when you made a joke or something about hands missing or something and I laughed and everybody kind of looked at me and I was like, <laughs> you know what, I can do that. Right. There's only a couple guys in this room that can actually laugh at that. You're one of them. Uh, and yeah. I remember that joke. I remember that laugh. And I remember people <laughs> glancing at you thinking, well, if that dude can laugh and O'Leary can laugh at himself, maybe we can laugh at some of the struggles we face. So uh, on fire. Uh, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in that sardine can trailer park, kids all around you, all the other things that you had going on, but you had joy in your heart. What's one characteristic that you possessed back then? that you wish you modeled as beautifully today in your life? I would have to say lovingness and leadership. Everyone can always fine tune everything. I still have them, but there's always room for improvement. If your home caught fire today and your son and your other two children and your bride, and now you are all out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would run in and get? Oh, the first thing I would run in and get would probably be my marriage certificate. I know I could get another one, but that for me is, uh, that would be one thing I would want to run back in and get. Why? Just because it means so much to me, the marriage itself and what it resembles. Todd, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I would have to say I would want to be sitting next to George Patton just to pick the brain. For the, the three listeners who may not know who General George Patton is, talk about George Patton. What was it about Patton that you uh, respect and you'd like to learn more about? Just his leadership skills and his, I mean, this man was a general and yet he's leading from the front. I mean, it's unheard of in his time. I remember him just reading about him in the history books of the Korean war and all that stuff. And it's just like, man, this guy has got the cojones of a large donkey. <laughs> What's the best advice that Patton or your stepfather or mother or some Marine or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice Todd nicely that you've ever received is. Life's not going to wait for you. What's that mean? Uh, it means no matter what you're going through in life, when you think it's that bad, life's not going to wait for you. It's going to keep going. Time keeps ticking. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean time's going to slow down. You got to keep pushing on, keep moving forward, left foot in front of the right, and pretty soon those clouds will part. 
Go back in, in time a little bit to the kid hanging sheetrock when you were age 20. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? Stop hanging sheetrock right now and go join the Marine Corps. Todd, nicely, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Went out to help other people and did a great job. Corporal, Todd, nicely, father, husband, servant, hero. You indeed did go out to help people. You led from the front. You continue to lead from the front and we continue to look up at and with you, my friend. So I, I just want to thank you for wearing that black shirt, for grabbing that marriage certificate, for being the father to your kids that maybe your dad wasn't able to be for you and for being one of the guys that I've, uh, I've always respected. I appreciate you, man. No, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. My friends, that is the great Corporal Todd Nicely. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift this day is. Live inspired. Your choices change lives. My friends, I've always wondered what kind of bumper sticker I would put on the back of my car. I've never had one. Been driving for more than 30 years, never had a bumper sticker. I've always wondered what kind of bumper sticker I might put on my arm in the form of a tattoo. What would yours say? Well, if you listened closely to the conversation today with Todd Nicely, his was very clear. Let me say it to you one more time. Your choices change lives. Those words were tattooed on Todd's back before his second appointment, and they serve to him and to you and me as a reminder. It's a reminder to all of us, whether we are a corporal leading a squad of Marines, a teacher leading a classroom of students, a business executive leading a boardroom or an entire organization, or a young person trying to lead forward effectively in their lives, that your choices change lives in including, of course, the reflection in the mirror. My friends, I told you on the front side of the conversation that today you were in for a treat, and I think that you received exactly that. I also told you that you are about to meet an incredible hero and human being, and I think you did exactly that a moment ago. If you were inspired by today's episode, let me share with you a couple ways to remain inspired. The very first is this. Todd's life began to change when he recognized that tattoo on his back could be lived out through his words, his actions, his life, every day of his life. He was encountered into that truth at Focus Marines. If you want to learn more about Focus Marines, and I encourage you to do exactly that. It's one of my very favorite organizations. Check them out. You can Google them right now, or you can join me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. In the show notes, I'll have a link that will take you directly to Focus Marines. Wonderful organization making a mighty difference in the lives of others, including Todd Nicely. So that's certainly one way to make a mighty difference, to reach out to those who are doing exactly that. If you enjoyed this conversation and it's hard for me to imagine that you did not and you heard the word Gary Sinise mentioned a couple times why not learn more about Gary Sinise and his work and his words and his wisdom and his life and you may be asking yourself John wow man I would like to but I don't know where to learn more about Gary well, I, don't worry I got a solution for you 
Gary Sinise has been interviewed by John O'Leary in the Live Inspired podcast. Did you know it? After his iconic role as Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump, it ignited within him a relentless drive to make a mighty difference for veterans, for first responders, for those who've experienced some hardship in their lives. Gary Sinise is far more than some Hollywood actor that you've seen on the big screen. He is a hero making a difference for heroes in the marketplace of life. If you want to learn more about Gary Sinise or all of the guests, the veterans, the first responders, and the heroes that we've interviewed on our Live Inspired channel, well, come on, check us out right now. Join me, won't you? At johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. I'll have a link to Gary's conversation there. I'll have a link to my friends at Focus Marines right there as well. And we'll have a link to all the various other podcasts so you can learn more about how you can choose to live inspired in your life. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our community. I want to thank you for believing like I do, that in spite of the challenges we face, and we do face them, do we not? The headwind is real, is it not? And yet the foundation is firm. We are capable. Your life is worthy. You are not alone, and your best is yet to come. So for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Akili Companies, they are all about the Keeling culture, and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love, just with a fresh, streamlined look and new additions to the family. Who knows? Maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time, and when you do... Go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at keelycompanies.com.